Hey, really good friends. This episode contains content that may be alarming to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more detailed descriptions and take care of yourself. Hello. And welcome to Historically Really Good Friends, a queer history podcast. I'm Rachel Craig. And I'm Jared Femblo. And hello again, take two. Hello, welcome back. Glad to be here tonight. Mm-hmm. This is our take two. We we just tried to start recording and we did get like eight and a half minutes into the recording, but all we talked about were the days of the week. And then mm-hmm. we got into a small argument about if a week starts on <laughs> Sunday or Monday. Uh, and then we just decided, what are we doing? Why, what are why we are doing? We... Let's take that one back. Let's take yeah, it let's again because back. as riveting as I found that conversation, we collectively decided that maybe you all would disagree. So we decided to just roll it back, do another one. So yeah, here so we are. Let's not We're fall back. into the same trap again of, no. of weekdays. Let's pick something else. What, what should we talk about okay. to open? Well, see, that's a lot of pressure because now I feel like I'm not a very interesting person. <laughs> you want to go back to the weekdays? Well, I just want to say that um, I I invite each of our listeners to try to come up with a not sort of small talk, interesting topic every week. Maybe it's difficult. I would imagine maybe I could have a career as a professional comedian if all else went to shit, but I could not. This is very okay. difficult. Right. Well, comedian and improv are very different. Well, I'm not good at improv for sure, despite coming in sixth in our statewide competition in high school. <laughs> I am by no means better at that. I think that I was could be peak, funnier. I think. Um. Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> you know what? I would agree. And I still will take to my grave mm-hmm. that we got a really bad prompt for our final round and it sunk us it it really got ahead of us okay let's um, let's Im- let's do a little improv right now um are we not doing that right now already no we are but give me a place um oh no oh no um oh no, um, oh, Just no. A place. Any pl- uh, a, okay a- okay the ocean okay great give me give me um give me like a job oh i just watched a tiktok about this hot air balloon driver driver uh-huh. yeah hot air balloon operator hot air <laughs> balloon heat pusher Bearer. okay so then like okay and then it would be like action and i'd be like hey you pal you want to take a ride because in this scenario i feel like that's the accent i would have so okay. hey, hey pal you want to take a ride in my hot air balloon over the ocean Oh, you want me to respond? And then that's where you would respond. Okay, I thought I was the audience in this because you were taking my suggestion so you could see where I was confused. Sure, but um, I didn't want to come up with all of it on my own. If, if improv feels like a team, a, a cooperative, a collaboration, if, if you will. Okay, um, I won't. Thank you for the invitation, though. Um, you won't take a, a hot air balloon ride, or you won't? No, I won't. I won't acknowledge improv as a collaboration. Okay, well. I think it's every man for themselves, but. Well, no, have you ever heard of yes and? That is the number one rule. Yes. Yes and. (laughs) Yes. 
I have. I have definitely heard of it. I think I'm having like bad improv flashbacks, which are the worst kind of flashbacks. Improv flashbacks. That would give me a panic attack. I just feel like there are a lot more collaborative things I'd want to try with you before improv. Like maybe a potato sack race. Okay. Okay, both. Or actually Uh potato sack race is not together. That is a three-legged race. Mm -hmm. That's together. That's very much together. mm Mm-hmm. Do you think our height would be detrimental? Our height difference? Um, uh, yes, I do. Yeah. Yes, I do. You might just have to like tilt me on my side a little bit, like lift me up a little bit. No, but the, I feel like I would have to go down because if you, you're tilting, then your leg is, it's harder to oh, touch Oh, so the you ground. would have to squat and uh-huh. you have terrible knees. So I we do. would not do very We've well. We've established <laughs> that in past episodes. My knees are shit. Yes. Sorry. What if we... You know what? Not that we, I mean, we kind of do do a, a collaborative thing together. We we do this podcast. Not that it's not, not that it's like enough for me, but it is something that we do do together. <laughs> we do do the podcast together. That's true. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess this is quite a team, quite a team sport. I am. Yeah. And, and this, I feel like it was difficult. It was challenging. Maybe it's like hard Actually, no, I disagree. Rewind that. Boop, 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 boop. What? Rewind noise. Listen, I was going to say that I feel like it could be difficult to do something collaborative with your friend, mm. but I wanted to take that back because I feel like it's actually in all of my few experiences, I'd rather work with like friends or loved ones than like a, a team project at school. You know what I mean? Like yeah. a group project, no. Right, Awful. I can't trust any yeah. of them. I definitely cannot. And like I was part of something in middle school that was like, for those of you who've seen Bob's Burgers, that was like the tween entrepreneurs episode where they have to like work together to create a business, except in my school it was called TREPS. I don't know if it stood for something or if it was like entrepreneur shorthand. Horrible. So I was in it. And you had to like do kind of collaborative activities as like mini entrepreneurs, which weird, but Mm -hmm. you can't trust those people. I don't want to start Mm -hmm. a business with none of those people. Mm -mm. No. Who would want to start a a business with a child? That's not, that can't be. I don't know. Willy Wonka, maybe? I don't know. It it isn't. And, and you just have to force, we had like a showcase at the end and we had to force our family to buy our stuff because my Mm. business was, um. Yeah, what did you what did you make? I took photos on my lime green waterproof Fiji film camera. Sure. And had them printed and made like greeting cards with the photos. Oh, okay. I wasn't like a a great photographer, but I just kind of lived in an area where there's a lot of pretty things to see, so I kind of skated by. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think my mom did a lot of the rest of the greeting cards. How much did they sell for? I don't remember. I think I had like bundles, you know, like three for two dollars or something, maybe, sure. you know, like a little a business a woman. little BOGO yeah. deal or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know yeah, what yeah. the people want. Yeah, I know draw what they them want. in. Draw them in and, um, and dry them. Dry their pockets? That doesn't feel like a <laughs> yep. No. That's fine. It's fine. So yeah, that was, uh, most of my family bought them at our little showcase and then gave them back to me as like birthday Mm -hmm. cards and things. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess it did. I I bet I still probably have some, 
and like a lot of my friends got the leftover ones for for their celebrations and things after that there are definitely Mm -hmm. some leftover in my house somewhere i'm i'm willing to bet and you're right it will haunt me well i do think that maybe you could revisit that idea Uh, but if you didn't um that's okay too that would that's fine it's definitely okay yeah, it's definitely it's fine. Okay. there's enough people with Etsy shops. Um, uh huh. I don't need to. I I started a podcast. I feel like You're I started a podcast, so that is my sort of like yeah millennial Gen X Gen Z whatever I am. That's mm-hmm. my mistake. There's SoundCloud rappers. There's Etsy shops. You can you pick a direction. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. picked podcast. I just gotta stick with that one. Okay. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad you're going to stick with this. I appreciate it. I am too. Thanks. Thanks for being supportive. Did did you have any um, any forced child labor clubs at your school? No, I don't think so. But what we did have was the business club. We did have. It was also a business club, but it was like it was for fifth graders. But then I was the first fourth grader in the history of the school to sign up for it. Wow, Um, breaking boundaries. Yeah, and so the fifth grade math teacher, I forget his name, would teach us like fundamentals of money and like like how to balance a checkbook and things like that. And I was like nine, so the the information (laughs) had no use for me and it did not stick. But I I am proud to say that I was in the business club. Wow, Mm -hmm. that is amazing. You're so advanced. You are businessman of the year in in my eyes so congrats thank you so i'm going first and i'm not gonna lie i'm a little nervous this week we are what are we 16 weeks into doing this and for 16, yeah. yeah i'm a little nervous to tell my story because Why are you nervous because the the subject of my story is one of my favorite people to have ever existed and i want to do this person justice and you know it's a little condensed story there's a lot of controversy there's a lot of things that i had to leave out to be able to fit in you know the beginning middle and end within 30-ish minutes so i'm a little nervous about about not doing the story justice but today i'm going to be talking to you about the one and only amy winehouse I am very excited to hear you tell this story because I know how much you love Amy Winehouse, but I actually don't know that much about her, even though we've been friends for so long. That was never something we like share. We didn't share our knowledge of Amy Winehouse. So of course I know some of her music, but I really am excited to hear someone so passionate tell me a little bit more today. Amy though, she is very much like Judy Garland, who we've talked Mm -hmm. about in the past, because her life is very highly or was very highly publicized, like her entire life once she became famous. So there's a lot of speculation and a lot of rumors that have been at this point included in biographies of her that just aren't true. So it's hard to fully know what the truth is, especially because like there were documentaries made about Amy from an outsider's perspective. And then like, Mm -hmm. uh, more recently, documentaries and books have come out from the perspective of family and friends so it's kind of like you know there's three sides to every story there's the media the family and then 
the actual story. So I did my best to kind of sort through everything and give a well-rounded picture of Amy. The sources I used, though, to kind of create this story are the Amy Winehouse Wikipedia page. This gives a great overview. It's really in-depth. There's a lot a lot there. Wikipedia, once again, saving saving me. I also used the 2021 documentary called Reclaiming Amy, and this is the recent documentary from the perspective of her family and friends kind of trying to tell the truth about the Amy Winehouse that people didn't see behind closed doors. I used Amy Winehouse, A Tragic Life That Still Resonates from DW.com. I used the Amy Winehouse Biography.com page and the Amy Winehouse Foundation website. Amy Jade Winehouse is born on September 14, 1983 in North London into a Jewish family consisting of her dad, Mitch, who's a window panel installer and taxi driver, her mother, Janice, who is a pharmacist, and an older brother of four years named Alex. The Winehouse family lives in a suburb called Southgate in North London. Amy attends a Jewish Sunday school but begs her father not to go as she learns nothing about being Jewish by going anyways. That's the excuse she used trying to get out of it. She grows up in a very loving family of musicians. Four of her maternal uncles are professional jazz musicians. Her paternal grandmother, Cynthia, is a singer. And her father is a frequent but amateur singer of Frank Sinatra. This is a family that will do whatever they can for their people. It's just really full of love. Amy's mother, Janice, had an incredibly strained relationship with her own mother, so Janice is always determined to be the best mom that she can be. When Amy is around 9 or 10, her parents separate, although both parents remain really close and active in her life. Around the same time, noticing Amy's talent, her grandmother Cynthia suggests that Amy should attend the Susie Earnshaw Theater School, where she then goes on Saturdays to further her vocal education and learn to tap dance. She attends this school for about four years, and during her time here, she creates a short-lived rap group called Sweet and Sour with a Childhood Friend, and it's based on TLC and Salt and Peppa. So you see her influences in music really early on, being this jazz from her family, and then this like rap mm-hmm. style from just like the time that she grew up in. Amy especially during this period of adolescence, is a leader amongst her friends, but also consistently pushing the boundaries. She has a bit of a rebellious streak, but nothing out of the ordinary of what any kid does. Through her teen years, Amy would be a force of nature, doing whatever she wanted and getting away with it. It was a struggle for her mother to put limits on Amy. After running her course at the Susie Earnshaw Theater School, Amy seeks full-time training at the well-known and respected Sylvia Young Theater School. In her application, Amy writes, quote, I would say that my school life and school reports are filled with could-do-betters and does not work to her full potential. I want to go somewhere where I am stretched right to my limits and perhaps even beyond. To sing in lessons without being told to shut up. But mostly, I have this dream to be very famous, to work on stage. It's a lifelong ambition. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles for five minutes, end quote. And so when she's around the age of 14, Amy toys around with her brother Alex's guitar and then buys her own to begin writing her own music. The next year, at the age of 15, Amy transfers from the Sylvia Young Theater School 
going then to a boarding school and then to another performing school, but drops out of high school altogether at the age of 16. Shortly thereafter, Amy begins working full-time, it seems as some sort of entertainment journalist, but then also while singing in a local band. In July of 2000, Amy becomes the featured female vocalist with the National Youth Jazz Orchestra, and when she's 16, one of Amy's old classmates and close friends sends her demo tape to a talent scout, and flash forward two years, in 2002, Amy is signed by 19 management and is paid 250 pounds a week. Good for her. Just kind of seemed to all happen pretty quickly. Very quickly. Like she's she's young. She's 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 young and she's young, but she has raw talent. Like just kind of right. from an early age, everybody knows that she has talent and she may have not expected it or like suspected it herself, but she's just right. like it's this thing that she loves to do and it's just like she's on her way. She's on. She's her on way. exactly. She's on her way. Yeah. She's kept a secret by the management company, though, as they begin to develop her as an artist, despite her regularly singing jazz standards at a local London club. And while performing at this club, Amy is accidentally discovered by Darkest Bees of Island Records, who instantly has interest in signing her. It takes a few months to finally find out who she is. And by this time, Amy has already begun recording a number of songs and signs a publishing deal with another label. So she's like, a, there's like a bidding war for her already. Yeah, especially- And she hasn't she just, even released any music. Right, she's writing music and then performing jazz standards. So it's like not, like she may be performing some of her original stuff, but she's doing a lot of covers right now. And it's just right. by people hearing her and like knowing of her- that people right. instantly are like, we got to sign this girl. Like they, right. they all can kind of see the talent and the stardom that she, like the potential she has. Mm-hmm. But Amy signing a publishing deal with another label doesn't deter Darkus, who convinces his boss to act fast and exclusively sign Amy as a bunch of these other labels, like we said, are beginning to make their moves as well. In the end though, Amy does sign with Island Records, and her debut album, Frank, is released in the next year in 2003, when Amy is 20. This album is produced by Salam Remy, who would produce most, if not all, of her music. The album is heavily influenced by jazz, and apart from two covers, Amy co-writes every song on the album. The album quickly is recognized as something special. In 2004, the album enters the UK charts at the number three ranking, and the album is nominated at the Brit Awards for Best British Female Solo Artist and Best British Urban Act. Mm. The same year, the album would receive the Ivor Novello Award for Best Contemporary Song for Stronger Than Me and is shortlisted for a Mercury Music Prize. The album sends Amy on tour and she performs at the Glastonbury Festival, the V Festival, and the Montreal International Jazz Festival. Amy, though, similar to Judy Garland, has increasing discomfort on the stage and a fear begins to grow of performing in front of large audiences. So she begins to use alcohol as a crutch to suppress these anxieties. At this point, Amy moves out of her mom's house and into an apartment with one of her closest friends, Catriona. As Catriona recalls in the 2021 documentary, Reclaiming Amy, quote, we had a very intense, obsessive friendship very quickly, end quote. Amy around this time is already battling with her mental health, but is never one to ask for help or speak genuinely about her problems or about what she's struggling with. 
she jokes about these things almost in like throwaway comments in a way to protect herself from being vulnerable, even with her closest friends. But at the same time, Amy does find solace in Catriona and her two other really close friends. Chantel, being one of these friends, notes in the documentary that they all found each other in a time when they all felt lost, but together they kind of found this like sense of belonging. Right. I can't imagine being in your early 20s and having achieved a substantial level of fame and having to find yourself and go through all of the identity things all young 20-somethings and teenagers do, but be already very a public facing person I, I imagine that probably is really difficult to know who to share things with and when and, and what you want to share absolutely especially because amy is like she definitely has a lot of internal battles going on from a very mm-hmm. early age and so now it's being kind of magnified at this like larger scale so right. it all happens very quickly for her and she just doesn't really know how to process these things and she does have the support of her friends and family but she still kind of just keeps a lot of it to herself right so amy feels like there's a lot she can't talk about including her sexuality and mental health two things that she's always struggled with quietly in the early 2000s there's still not much talk or openness about these subjects Catriona, who by the time she's living with Amy has already discovered her own queerness, becomes involved with Amy. Catriona recalls, quote, she used to write notes while I was sleeping saying things like, you're the most beautiful girl I've ever seen and how can you look as beautiful asleep as you do awake? Amy and Catriona's other friends remember the whole situation just being funny. Cat and Amy slept together, they would say, and then they'd all laugh and move on. Amy and Catriona's relationship remains undefined for quite a while. It's it's just two people very much in love with each other. And Catriona says she was confused about what it made her. And so in this jokey fashion that Amy kind of always talks about serious things in, in an interview, she says, I'm not a lesbian until I've had four Sambucas. And so she kind of is you know she's like, like playing it off at it yeah right and she's like, like playing it off like oh no i'm not a lesbian until i'm drunk but right. in the, the same, same way time, people talk about like going to college and like experimenting with women like not in the same way acknowledging i think a, a a sexual identity but just kind of like brushing it off or making a comment on it being like oh it's nothing but it, it's it's something right. but there's just no mm-hmm. way for her to kind of like, she doesn't have the language or the, right not acceptance, but, you know. Maybe she, maybe she just doesn't feel safe enough acknowledging that for herself or to other people, like friends or more broadly, like other people in her life. Like, I think no one has to know that. And so if her way is just kind of joking, mm-hmm. joking. Like, if they all know in some capacity, especially with her and her friend then maybe her way is just to kind of joke about it so that it doesn't feel so serious. Right. Around 2005 to 2006, Amy goes through a period of heavy drinking, drug use, and weight loss after meeting an intense drug user and falling head over heels for him. This is an incredibly dark and toxic period for Amy where she dives deeper into using drugs and alcohol in excess, Her personal life really takes a fall and everything gets caught up in a whirlwind succession of bad choices. 
After a few months, luckily, they split up, which takes a toll on Amy and her mental health, though, and she begins writing her next album, which features countless lyrics about her breakup and her struggle with addiction, such as in the song Rehab. It's a song we all know. It's kind of the song that really got her popular, but it really is speaking about her personal experiences that she's going through. Right. In addition to writing this album, her grandmother, Cynthia, one of Amy's biggest supporters, dies mid-2006, which completely sets Amy off into her addiction once again. So let's talk a little bit about this next album real quick, because this is like the album that made Amy Winehouse a household name. After the release of Frank, Amy shifts her focus from jazz to the girl groups of the 1950s and 60s. Amy's love for these groups is so big that she styles herself off of them, which is where she gets her signature beehive hairdo and her Cleopatra makeup from, which are borrowed directly from the Ronettes. Amy travels with her family, Salam Remy, and Mark Ronson, another producer, to Miami where she works on the sophomore album Back to Black. So while here, Amy also picks up the use of bold red lipstick, thick eyebrows, and heavy eyeliner, which come from the Latina women that she encounters, and these features would become the cause of repeated denigration by the British press. In coming years, award shows would nominate Amy's work for Best Solo Artist and Best Music DVD, but in the same show award her Worst Dressed Performer. And Amy, from childhood, is incredibly self-conscious about the way she looks and how people see her, and the nastiness of the media only worsens her self-image. Yeah, one, why is that a category? Two, feels, I think, definitely, I don't know if racist is the correct word, because I'm I'm interested in her, um, a lot of the influences you've listed sound like they're, you know, women of color, and like, she's been impacted by their style and, and their music and things like that. But it feels like those are the direct things that are being targeted also then by yeah. the press. So... Yeah, that's a really. She was impacted and influenced in a major way by women of color, like a lot of our music is, especially think the music Amy Winehouse was making, and then for that to be the criticism, like not her talent, but her style, which was directly related to those things, feels icky. That's a great point. That's such a great point. And it's interesting because there's an absolute dichotomy between the press being like, her voice and her talent is so amazing, look at her, but then also being like, but the way that she dresses, like, and the way that she, like, looks was, they were saying that it was, like, the complete opposite. So you're right, it is heavily, like... Right, we want her to be a soulful, but white, British woman. We don't want her to embody the same characteristics of other soul or jazz music that we don't like, namely that it was first introduced by people, by people of color. Of color. Yeah, that's a great point. <laughs> Nevertheless, Back to Black, the 11-song album, is completed in just five months. It releases in October of 2006 and hits the number one album on the UK charts for two weeks in January of 2007. Back to Black is the best-selling album in the UK of 2007, selling 1.85 million copies in just one year. Whoa, I wish I could take my motivation, all my haters, and actually make make something out of it that's that wonderful. (laughs) 
At the end of 2006, Amy begins to promote Back to Black, performing at various venues, including the MTV Movie Awards and Lollapalooza. The first few months of the tour go very well, but the rest, however, is horrible. In November of 2007, Amy begins her 17-date tour for the album, but is met by booing and walkouts during the opening night. She's in tears when she walks on the stage, she's stumbling around, she's swearing at the audience, she's just completely intoxicated. And by the end of the month, by the end of November, Amy cancels the rest of her performances and public appearances, citing exhaustion and ill health, although she's hospitalized during this period for what is reported as an overdose of heroin, ecstasy, cocaine, ketamine, and alcohol. Amy continues to struggle with her addiction, self-harm, depression, and bulimia. She's in desperate need of help with her mental health, but the culture of the 2000s did not understand nor respond with great effectiveness. In 2007, Amy is married to that intense drug user that I mentioned before, and their relationship Mm -hmm. has the pair in and out of jail on drug charges. Amy's constantly getting caught up with the wrong crowd, and without faltering, she's consistently madly in love with him. She remains in this horrific relationship until 2009 or so, and I don't want to spend too much time discussing it because there's just a lot of controversy surrounding the whole relationship. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of toxicity, but just know that there is like so much pain and suffering that comes from her time with this man, especially being under the microscope of the nation. Mm -hmm. And so by 2008, Amy begins her tumultuous journey in and out of rehab centers and programs. But in contrast, her professional life is soaring. In early 2008, Amy receives six Grammy nominations and wins five of the six, including Record of the Year, Song of the Year, Best Female Pop Vocal Performance for Rehab, and Best Pop Vocal Album. She also earns a Grammy as Best New Artist. Why, as a society, do we do that, I think, so often? Like... I think we are just obsessed with these stories from a distance that like the same happens. I don't know if it's musicians specifically, but if you think about all those, like like The Voice or American Idol mm-hmm. too, it's like you want to root for the person who's had this really difficult, tragic, so to speak, backstory, yeah. regardless of if they're still suffering, you could give a fuck less what their current life is like. Right. But you're just like, I instantly love this more because I know that there's some kind of pain going on with the artist. And that's strange, but I feel like we do that quite often. I mean, it's it's wonderful that she had this professional success, of course, especially knowing that's something she's always wanted, but it didn't come with any support. It seemed like the higher levels of fame that she had, the more distance she got from receiving care that would have been impactful. That's where the controversy of everything comes in, because when things really do start getting bad for Amy, her dad, Mitch, starts talking to the public about what's going on with her and Mm -hmm. is very open. And he admits it in Reclaiming Amy, the new documentary. And he's like, I made mistakes. Mm -hmm. He was like, I loved the limelight. He's like, if I could go back and change things, I absolutely would. And like, Amy's friends are like, Mitch should have been more careful about who he was talking to. But like, there's just a lot of choices that were made that were not helpful or conducive to Amy or her health, both by 
people close to her in her family and her record label. Like there were people in contact or in her professional circle that basically Mm -hmm. would say we're letting the media and all the press do this because her sales are getting better. And because if we don't, then it's starving young audiences, the like drama of it all, because reality TV is becoming really a really big thing in the early 2000s, right? The culture is all about drama Mm -hmm. and all about this like bullshit. And so they're basically being like, this is like an Amy Winehouse soap opera. Like people are eating this up. So why would they stop? She can sell magazines, which sell more records. And so there's a point where the company who essentially owns someone says, how far can we push this where we can still get music, but they're still... At, at a certain point, you're not rooting for her probably emotional right. success or like right. well-being. Right. You're rooting for records. Right. And so in the 2015 documentary, Amy, which was not made by her family, it was made from outsiders. They mm-hmm. make a lot of bold claims about the family and about the label and about people close to her and about how they didn't actually try to help her. And then in Reclaiming Amy, this new documentary kind of shows the other side being like, that's not at all the story. That's not what was going on. So right. there is like a lot of, you know, what's the truth and 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 who was right, who was wrong. Like there's just a lot of like, we don't know what the actual story was. With people who die from substance use or things related to substance use disorders and, and their surviving family and friends, there can be a lot of guilt associated with yeah. that. And so like, you will never know what helped or didn't help. Right. You will never know what could have changed something or not. And so I think- you know, the speculation around that too, you could do forever and ever and ever, and it won't change that. Absolutely. And so winning these five Grammys catapults Amy and her sophomore album into an even higher level of fame. And now she's the person that the media can't get enough of. Paparazzi begin following literally her every move, reporting on every little thing she does. So she goes from being this quote, relatively normal girl to being super famous seemingly overnight, her friend Naomi would recall. So it really does- Also, the the UK tabloids, they need to learn a fucking lesson and they still haven't, evidently. But like, Jesus, yeah, they let's- hounded her. They literally were like there every- they were outside of her house. Like she had to have bodyguards stand outside her house. Like she was- truly overnight going from this girl from North London that had a good voice to being like Amy Winehouse and everybody wanted to know what was going on. They wanted her next scandal. They wanted to make money off of her suffering. And it's so gross. The pressure from this public attention gets to Amy very quickly. You know, everywhere she goes, people have their eyes on her. But behind closed doors... Friends and family would report that Amy is incredibly intelligent, very clever and funny, and for the most part, she's able to hold herself together. Yes, other times she bursts into these moments of anger and can't be talked off her ledge, but everyone in Amy's life is just trying to navigate her addiction and get her the help she needs. But like I mentioned earlier in the story, even from a young age, Amy does what Amy wants to do. She really is the boss. She is the one in charge. People can tell her not to do things and they can try to stop her from it, but she always has a way of getting what she wants. 
And at this point, she has. I mean, she's so young and has demonstrated that she can achieve the things that she said she was going to. So there's no evidence for her literally still developing brain to suggest otherwise that she can't get what she wants. And it's hard because... At this point, Janice has multiple sclerosis, and so her her, her body, mother, her mother, okay, ha- and so it's hard for her mother to do things physically. So there are points right. where she just sits there and can't do anything, but watch Amy self destruct, and it's like no matter what she says, she can't physically stop Amy. Right. So Amy's just going ahead and doing these things, and so in the documentary, it's so it's heartbreaking. She's basically says at that point all I could do was sit there and and watch my daughter and basically wait for her to die. Right, right. So it it doesn't seem like there's a light at the end of this tunnel. And her health from this point gets even worse, and it truly is nothing but a downhill spiral. Despite her illnesses, Amy continues to perform even when her managers and her parents tell her not to. She, like, literally, like I'm saying, has an entire team of people trying to help her get better, but no matter what they try, they struggle to make any progress. Eventually, in late 2008, Amy's father, Mitch, has her detained under the Mental Health Act of 1983, and she goes to a facility until this quote-unquote episode passes. But then when she kind of comes out of it and she's better, the doctors are like, there's nothing we can do, and so they release her. Right. But from that moment on, it does seem like something switches in Amy because Mitch says that Amy begins to get better. She begins to realize how scary everything's been. She decides that enough has been enough. So she stops taking drugs and it seems like she's back. But what they don't realize is that despite the Grammys and despite stopping the drugs, Amy seemingly switches one addiction for another, falling deeper into her alcoholism in order to avoid addressing her mental health issues. At the time, Amy fears being sent to a psychiatric facility, so her solution is to just say that her problems aren't there. And I want to note that Amy is prone to addiction, so she can't just stop herself. Like, this is something that is just a part of Amy, and she does not have the ways to cope with it. And also, people with substance use disorders have them whether they're in recovery or not. So, like, it's always a part of you. It's always something you actively are dealing with every day, regardless of if you are currently using substances. So, like, it's always going to, to be there for her. Between 2009 and 2011, Amy's drinking takes over her life. She performs, but each performance seems to have something go wrong. Either there are problems with her voice, or she's too drunk to remember she's performing, or she gets into physical altercations with audience members. Every time you think she's hit rock bottom, she just keeps going lower and lower and lower. In 2011, Amy gets a new apartment, which she says will be a new chapter in her life a new happy start. Her friend Naomi lives with Amy here and recalls there being long stints of sobriety, but then interspersed with weeks of binge drinking as well. But people are in and out of this home every day, family, friends, professionals, all trying to help Amy, and it's really rare that there isn't someone there for her and with her. But then suddenly, on July 23rd, 2011, Amy's bodyguard finds her unconscious in her bedroom, prompting a call to emergency services. She had been drinking the entire previous night, but was up around 2 a.m. watching TV, listening to music, and laughing. But the combination of extreme drinking and sobriety, as well as her constant struggle with bulimia, finally catches up to her body. 
Amy is pronounced dead at the scene shortly after the call is made, and it later would be revealed that the cause of death was alcohol poisoning. Her blood alcohol content was more than five times the legal drink drive limit. She was only 27 years old, making her a member of the 27 Club. After her death, the Amy Winehouse Foundation is set up by Amy's family and launches in September of 2011. The charity itself works to prevent the effects of drug and alcohol misuse on young people, and it also aims to support, inform, and inspire vulnerable and disadvantaged young people to help them reach their full potential. The foundation also has recovery housing for young women, as well as music therapy for children, both in the UK and in the US. Amy is then cremated and buried next to her grandmother, Cynthia, in North London, She is remembered for the legacy she leaves behind, including the charity work she performed throughout her life, her record label, Lioness Records, and the absolute killer track record that she was able to achieve in such an incredibly short time. And that is the heartbreaking yet incredibly abridged story of one of my favorite people, Amy Winehouse. Jaren, thank you for condensing that. I'm sure that was really difficult. And it was a really beautiful story to hear. I especially loved the ending. This is one of the endings that I knew was going to be sad. Because we talked about in the previous episode, me being a little surprised by the ending. So I I did know how this one ended. But I think it's really beautiful that there are charities established that use music as those coping skills. Mm -hmm. For young people, I think that's really important. Amy herself was a young person still. Like she's so young and accomplished so many things. And, you know, you almost wish they could have been Mm -hmm. scattered across a more full lifetime rather than kind of all together. It's always one of those things, like I said, you can talk around it for hours of what would have, would have, could have, should have all of those things. Mm -hmm. But she really had a very lasting legacy on you certainly and on so many people and especially artists like so many Mm -hmm. current modern day artists say that amy winehouse was such a big inspiration in them starting so like she really has had an impact on a lot of people but a lot of people in the music industry as well she yeah and it's it's sad because all of the articles I read and even my story, the way that I told it, just because I'm trying to give a full story about her, a lot of her addiction and a lot of her issues really do overshadow her immense talent. Right. And it is really sad that she is remembered, you know, partially for how she died at a young age. It is part of her story, but like she was this bright person she was incredibly intelligent she was really well spoken Mm -hmm. and she just unfortunately had circumstances that you know didn't fare well and they're they're beyond they were beyond her control and i think that's it is sad too you're right because that is from the story most of what i knew about her and i think though from what you said too in a way that's hard to explain and you know you don't want it to come off sounding bad but i think in her own way, it does demonstrate the sort of resilience and strength that she had because mm-hmm. she didn't have words to communicate what she needed or what she was feeling. She did it a lot through her music and and she found ways to 
get through what she needed to get through. And and ultimately they weren't ways that her body could handle that was helpful in the long run, but you have to wake up every day and she had a lot to do. And so Mm -hmm. she had to find ways to get through those things. And so they were not ways that we can handle as people, but she still did all of the things she needed to do every day and still managed to leave that legacy. And I think that does lend itself to the resilience that even her as such a young person could have. And that's truly why she is one of my favorite people Mm -hmm. is just the way that she the way that she fought through everything and every battle and worked for everything right. she had and just truly embodied right. like I don't give a fuck what you say and and mm-hmm. I'm going to do me. And I appreciate you sharing all of that too because because of of the sort of tragedy of her premature death, we don't get to see the way that she influences people and in this way in you know the queerness that maybe she didn't have enough time to to learn yeah. about and discover for herself, which I think is another something else that's a shame. And I hope that the people who experienced that with her and um, like Catriona, I hope she can hold mm-hmm. that piece of it too. And, and that, cause that's a really important part of this also. That's a part right. that we don't get to hear about as often and we don't get to honor as often. Yeah. That was perfect. Thank you, Jared. Thank you. So thank you again for sharing that story. And, you know, mine sort of has a similar disclaimer, though I, I didn't have as many ties to to my subject. My story to yeah, my subject today. But I think it goes to stand for most of the topics we talk about too of if you're interested in something learn more about it because this is by no means you know everything no but i'm going to be talking about another music icon the queen of disco sylvester amazing the way i found him is very interesting and i will take you on that journey but first the sources that i used include david garber's vice article remembering queer icon sylvester disco's most unsung hero the article sylvester when gay times met the disco legend which was an october 1984 interview originally by bill short the extraordinary musical legacy of sylvester by alex petritus for the guardian as always, Sylvester's Wikipedia page, and then How the World Caught Up to Sylvester for KQED. So I promised I was going to kind of take you on a journey of how I found Sylvester, because I think that's part of the magic of this story for me. Okay. I saw something on Instagram, I guess a week or so ago. I think it, I think it was Instagram, and it was just like a pop-up, and it was like the queer origins of the fanny pack, and I was shocked. I was hooked. Those marketers, they got me. I went down like a rabbit hole of Googling like fanny packs, which took me to Birkenstocks and like the lesbian anti-fashion movement. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, maybe I'll talk about fashion, non-fashion, like pioneers, icons. I thought it would be nice to kind of talk about feeling comfortable in your body as summer Mm -hmm. is kind of upon us now. And I'm not a big shorts person. Like, I just was like, this will be really nice. We'll talk about kind of queer fashion history. And in all of this, especially the kind of embracing your body and embracing your style, 
I find Sylvester. Hmm. I've been wanting, I think every week, Jared, you can attest to this, that I'm like, can I talk about disco this week? So Truly, I've been, you've been I really for this do. One. I have been. So I've been wanting to talk about disco. I found all this stuff about fashion and, you know, all of their origins are so rooted in queerness. I thought this would kind of be, as I'm reading about Sylvester, I thought this was the perfect vessel to to deliver my disco rant that I'm so eagerly awaiting. But as I kept learning, Sylvester deserved his own episode. So we'll save the disco and the fanny packs and the Birkenstocks for another day. And this is all dedicated to disco queen Sylvester. Sylvester. Let's do it. So that was that was the background. And so I hope it really paints a picture yeah, for you. Yeah, did. Sylvester James was born in Los Angeles, California in 1947. And in his own words, he says, quote, don't ask me how I got started or how old I am. <laughs> Let's just say I came from an upper middle class black bourgeois family in Los Angeles and that I left a boring nine to five job to San Francisco. So that's what already. Sylvester was like. Yeah, amazing. He's... In the same way Amy was, which again, more of a coincidence of just like, I'm, I'm me. Mm-hmm. Don't worry. You do you. You worry yeah. about you. Stay in your I'll lane. worry about me. You don't, you don't have to know all that stuff. And sure. he was right. So needless to say, there is some information about Sylvester's upbringing, but many people are most thrilled to learn about what he did later in life. And he seemed to want that as well. So we're going to skip ahead a little bit. We're going to leave out some of the background details to sort of honor that will sure. wish of Sylvester's. <laughs> it's um, like, um, sorry, real quick, a little sidebar. Yeah. It's like when in Parks and Rec, Ron Swanson doesn't want anyone to know what his birthday is. And so his birthday. Uh, Leslie has to ask Baskin Robbins <laughs> or she like finds out That's through it. Baskin Robbins because he signed up yeah. to that. <laughs> At like a taste test or whatever very similar yes. vibes yes and he like throws his computer away when somebody finds yeah. out something yeah. yeah like sends him something in the mail exactly like same same energy <laughs> so i'll just give you kind of the highlights we'll take a, a quick we're not going to take the scenic route we're just going to take a quick tour through sure, sylvester's background and then get to some of the other stuff so okay sylvester got his musical start from his roots with the pentecostal church and gospel music He stopped attending church and moved away from his immediate family, living with his grandmother, Julia, who always supported Sylvester's fairly open sexuality. He didn't have a bad relationship with his family, though he moved away very young, around the age of 13, but they just weren't really close. He would occasionally visit his younger siblings and his mom and stepfather, like back home. But by age 15, Sylvester was kind of finding his own footing. He was out on his own, 15 years old, kind of like living on his own, sort of relying on his grandmother. But that's it. He's like kind of homeless. And and this was a, this was his choice. It wasn't like a kick out situation. It was mainly him. There was some, and the only support I could find for this was in his Wikipedia page. Uh-huh. Um, so I didn't fully include this, but there is some speculation about his leaving both the church and his family because of potentially a an abusive relationship with a church, like a, a clergy okay. member. Uh, Sylvester, to his biographer, 
does not um, support that recollection. Okay. So there's kind of some controversy around that, but I think his his mom was had quite a few other children, was married to someone else at that point, and he just like wasn't really fitting in. His okay. parents didn't approve nor disapprove of his sexuality at this point, but enough that he mm-hmm. was willing to kind of be on his own at 15. So he wasn't kicked out, but he was sort of maybe forced out to feel safer. Sure. Nevertheless, age 15, he sort of forms a bond with a group of black teenage drag queens known as the Discotays, which is spelled D-I-S-Q-U-O-T-A-Y-S. Wow. (laughs) The the Discotays. Yeah, because why not? And so the discotes were described by one former member as, quote, somewhere between a street gang and a sorority house, unquote. I'm obsessed. Yes, already. This is what I mean. His, Sylvester, how did we not know? Truly. How did we not know? Truly. Um, we were missing out. So this is his kind of group, age 15. He's between a street gang and a sorority house. Mm-hmm. And this was kind of the start of Sylvester's liberation, we'll kind of call it. At this time, it was in 1960s California, where they were strictly enforcing their anti-cross-dressing laws, as we saw with the Compton's Cafeteria riot. But because he had this influence and this kind of group in the discotheques, they would walk around in full drag and they were kind of like, what are you going to do about Untouchable. it? Like, exactly. And so Sylvester's high school graduation outfit was a blue chiffon dress and a beehive wig. He was like, here I am. Here I am. Another connection to Amy Winehouse, a beehive wig. Yes, like, exactly. Exactly. And this was like the, the original, right. This was the original sort of popularity of the beehive and amy brought it back and i love the fact that this like pack mentality is kind of like if you're gonna take if if you're gonna take someone down like you have to take all of us down like right like we're all in this together and like if you're gonna touch if you gotta if you're gonna get them you gotta go through me yeah they're like spartacus Kissing, Spartacusing, Spartacying this whole situation. And I love it. The cross-dressing laws. Yeah. I love it. And at this point, Sylvester, the group was a bunch of self-identified drag queens, but Sylvester never really supported that. In fact, usually corrected people when he was called that himself. So he was sort of defining genderqueer and non-binary, especially like presentation before people even knew what those words were. We're in 1960s California. Yeah. And people couldn't embrace them in the way that he was. Like they they weren't yet supported by what that meant. Mm -hmm. So upon graduation, he took his beehive wig and left Los Angeles for San Francisco, where he joined a drag performance group known as the Coquettes, which I also love. I also love that. How do you spell that one? Uh, Coquettes. (laughs) C-O-C-K? C-O-C-K-E-T-T-E-S. So like the Ronettes? Yes. Sure. I don't know how to spell that though. Well, the Ronettes were who Amy got her inspiration from. She had the beehive. Yes. So, so the same as that. Ronettes. Drag performers. Right. So Incredible. Yeah. So he performed and traveled with the Cockettes for about a year before moving on from the group in 1971, looking for something just a little bit more serious. The Cockettes would mainly take LSD and do rambling kind of performance art they were sort of like Mm. white hippies that were not 
as much into like musical performances as Sylvester hoped to be. So he was kind of looking to find a bigger break for himself. He began opening for larger performers, and by 1972, David Bowie said in an interview after a lackluster audience in San Francisco, David says, they don't need me. They've got Sylvester. Wow, that's high praise. (laughs) Yes, because a reporter after a concert, like a David Bowie concert, was like, like, because it went fine, but it was David Bowie in 1972, and people were just like, what? Like, they just didn't need it. And so the reporter was like, what happened? Like, what's up? Like, San Francisco could have been your crowd. And he was like, they've already got one. <laughs> like, like wow. this this guy's been here. And, and they're not interested in what I'm bringing to the table they as much as... They don't need more. Right. Exactly. And so if you're more familiar with David Bowie, you can imagine that this was kind of the same energy that Sylvester was bringing and and inventing. Like we think of David Bowie as sort of the pioneer of this musical style definitely was different, but think of his sort of fashion and his, the things that make him iconic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sylvester was doing that. Okay. And there could be a lot of reasons why maybe their stardom was not the same Maybe because Sylvester was a black man, whereas David Bowie was not. Like, there could have been a lot of different reasons. But regardless, they kind of were bringing the same energy. And Sylvester, at least, owned that territory in San Francisco. This rise in popularity led to Sylvester's first record deal with Blue Thumb, the same label that signed the Pointer Sisters. So it's kind of like got a big name. He had some successes with his band and the Blue Thumb label, but quickly ran out of money and stopped selling records as much. So he sort of did it a little bit, but never really achieved like a high success from it. Okay. So he left that record and started kind of the solo career. He went to the Castro district of San Francisco, which was the most popular area at the time for kind of gay clubs. So he started performing there, namely playing the song, You Make Me Feel parentheses mighty real the first time he started playing it it was a piano tune inspired by his gospel background but it was nearing the end of the decade so the end of the 70s and at this point a producer patrick cowley was looking for a new artist to kind of pave the way for the next wave of music in the 80s so he's like looking for the new next hottest thing And boy, did he find a pioneer in Sylvester, as you can already tell. Cowley heard him perform You Make Me Feel and asked to make a remix of the song in kind of a more upbeat disco dance club sort of way. The remix, Sylvester was like, sure, sounds good. And this remix became Billboard's number one on the dance music chart. No way. Sylvester was like almost immediately, similarly to Amy, skyrocketed to his throne and assumed the title Queen of Disco. So this song is also still a bop. Like it really is just a dance. Like same way we would think of kind of like dance beats now. Mm-hmm. It's very similar. I think it was even in a Target commercial in like 2011. Like Whoa. it still has... you can recognize a lot of current music influences Mm -hmm. in it. So not only was this song and his other music consistently bops, but he had like it. He was a showman. He had stage presence. He was unique in his style. It was sometimes feminine, sometimes masculine, sometimes androgynous. 
you just wanted to watch him and be captivated by him because he was confident in who he was. And he was just mashing all of these things together in a way that worked, in a way that people were drawn to and and felt felt something in. Right. I was going to say, even if they're not drawn to him in a way of admiration, I think there is still something in the fact that people... People love to to gawk at at yes. people and things that they're not used to and and are not you know like comfortable with. So I think seeing someone that is so comfortable being androgynous and having mm-hmm. this specific sound and having the stage presence and just having the it factor, like that, just kind of opens all the doors right there to be like, even if you don't look like me, like you're listening to my music, look at me, like this is who yeah. I am. I'm here. That's exactly it. Like. You might come to be a nosy gawker, but you're going to stay and still watch because Sylvester was captivating in that way that maybe you came because you didn't think you were going to like what he was doing or you wanted to watch Mm -hmm. in a way that was gross and not because you liked it. But then he was so confident in it. You were just intrigued. You couldn't take your eyes off of it. That's amazing. Also, he was just like, I was looking up when I was researching, like looking up pictures, like even in a still photo, I was like, I, your look, like so beautiful, so truly captivating, even in a still photo and just gives off, like radiates big dick energy, like just radiates from a photo. Like it's amazing. Some people were just meant to be performers and it sounds like that's Sylvester. Very much. It's like, feels very similar to the way you described Barbette and and the reactions of Barbette. Yeah. Yeah. It feels very similar because, again, this was defining, I think, a whole identity. This was Mm -hmm. defining something for people in the way that I think Barbette could have. And and Sylvester was confident in it. Sylvester wasn't defining something for himself, but he did it for other. Other people found that. Right. So – all of this kind of performance, though, really helped him because the disco craze did not last long. And it was likely because it started off too black and it was too queer and people just decided it was lame because of that. And they were like, let's collectively stop listening to disco and make it sort of a joke. And don't worry, there will be more on that in a future episode, I promise. Good. But Sylvester, though, was able to stay popular in the Castro district because probably of all of those things we're just talking about. Mm -hmm. So in 1982, his song Hard Up became the third video by a Black artist to be featured on MTV. So he's still popular. We're sort of into the next decade. Now we're into the 80s. Things -hmm. have changed a lot. Disco is dead now. Disco has been killed. And he's still kind of going strong as a performer. And he's permeating mainstream culture which i think Mm -hmm. is a really big thing because when we talk a lot about these artists that you know are people of color and they're you know going down an alternate avenue that's not you know of the mainstream and they're doing these art forms like willie ninja or like the ballroom scene like a lot of these things tend to be and stay subcultures especially Mm -hmm. with an art form like disco that is demolished and killed so quickly right but the fact that he's getting a music video on mtv which is like teenagers like the channel for teenagers like he's reaching young audiences at a mainstream level being queer and black and having the certain sound that people have decided is not right it's not what people should be listening to like right yeah and i think in the interviews i was reading about him too like 
he was compared, for people that I at least had heard of, he was compared to, like, we're talking about David Bowie, he was compared to at this time too, like, Boy George, like, those people who were defining music and queerness and fact, like, all of these very iconic things that we can pull away from this time, Sylvester was right in the heart of that. And his legacy might be different. Like like I said, there's probably many reasons why maybe Mm -hmm. you and I hadn't heard of him before, but especially at the time, he -hmm. was right in the mix with all of those trendsetters. Sure, sure. He was unapologetic about his music style, his appearance, and his identity. He did not have time for Joan Rivers when she described him as a drag queen on The Tonight Show and he retorted, I'm Sylvester. (laughs) Good for him. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, she just like, People were constantly trying to label him, and that's sort of how he got this brand as Sylvester, because that right. was his his response label is always. Sylvester, right? That was just what he had to say about himself. That's all he needed you to know about him. He was like, "I'm Sylvester." Yeah, that's so admirable. And again, he was defining this gender queerness before people had a name for all of this that Sylvester was offering them. Mm -hmm. It just wasn't, it wasn't defined yet. It wasn't accepted. It wasn't recognized in a way that people could collectively identify behind something. Mm -hmm. Typically at this time, especially it was like cross-dressing was associated with either drag or something that trans people were doing. So it, it wasn't really yet something that could be felt or expressed by people who didn't fit either of those things, people who were gender fluid or non-binary. And Sylvester helped sort of make that room and say like, I don't have to be either of those things Mm -hmm. to dress and act and speak in the way that I want to, to still be real and valid. Right. Sylvester stopped creating music shortly after these big hits in the early 80s when his friend and original producer Patrick Cowley died from AIDS-related complications. Mm. His longtime boyfriend Rick Kramer soon after passed away, and by 1987, Sylvester knew that he too was working on borrowed time. He began advocating for those impacted by AIDS and performed his hits at benefit concerts. He was seen in 1987 at the Castro's Gay Freedom Parade in a wheelchair and touring San Francisco whenever he was able. Sylvester died from AIDS complications in 1988, and we still feel his legacy in all the ways we've been talking about. From current popular dance tracks to song tributes and Target commercials to slightly more acceptance and acknowledgement of gender queerness. As Sylvester himself told a New York audience in November 1978, While basking in the first flush of fame that his hit song, You Make Me Feel, brought him, quote, sometimes folks make us feel strange, but we're not strange. And those folks, they'll just have to catch up, unquote. Sylvester's biographer, Joshua Gamson, says, quote, there's greater and greater recognition of queer culture, a lot more room and less shame and embarrassment. There's more of an appetite for learning about the people who helped make this happen and the people who've been overlooked because of intersectional racism, homophobia, anti-femme, and all the things that have kept Sylvester somewhat on the margins. There have been multiple biographies and movies about Sylvester and even a Broadway play featuring his music a la Jersey Boys style, but obviously better. Um, I haven't seen Jersey Boys, that's just an assumption, but I'm, <laughs> I feel like it's a safe bet. 
<laughs> and as we talked about with Amy too, this is not even half of it. I encourage you, if you like music or fashion or history or really anything, Sylvester's story has something for you and I just couldn't cover it all. So definitely check it out at your leisure. Sylvester has said about his sexuality, quote, my sexuality has nothing to do with my music. When I'm fucking, I'm not thinking about singing and vice versa, unquote. And I want to leave us with some of his words from an interview with Bill Short in 1984. Sylvester says, quote, being butch or non-butch, drag or no drag, it's real funny to me. I know people who have wardrobes for every occasion. As real people, gay men are not simply butch or non-butch, but these bars make people label themselves. He says, we all wear drag, whether it be dresses or leather or jeans, but people are shocked at this. Joshua Gamson, his biographer, says about Sylvester's legacy, quote, in his own terms, it's like the world caught up, unquote. So that was a brief little bit about Sylvester. That's that's really awesome. Thank you for telling me. I'm like baffled that I've never heard of him, especially because he is such a trailblazer and like mm-hmm. just so I always use the word pioneer, like like for the fact that he was an original person making room for people that were saying fuck labels and I am what I am and I'm not gonna conform to you know this hetero ideology of labeling yourself as one thing or another it's so impressive that like Amy he had the resilience to be himself and to kind of work his way into these spaces and basically say like everybody back up I'm here and I'm making space for me and this is who I am and like if you don't like it you can fuck off and go somewhere else Mm -hmm. I think that's it like that's what's so I think like magical and cool about this story and why we're probably so drawn to people that can do those things like I'm here you either like it or you don't or like mind your business or or all of those things because it was like paving the way for future generations with like effortlessly, you know, like it was right. like making it. And and that's not to say like, obviously his life and the things he experienced were by no means effortless, but sure. his attitude and the way he carried himself demonstrated to other people that like, you can just exist. Right. You can just be authentic in the same way you were saying about Amy and what draws people, I think, to these stories is that authenticity. That you can say, I've had a hard life and I've gone Mm -hmm. through things and you still are showing up every day and just like being that person that's able to still like leave these lasting legacies is is just wild to me. Right. And I think the fact too that it doesn't seem like Sylvester was doing it for anything other than being himself and living his life. Like it didn't seem like the intentions necessarily were to have his name put on anything as, you know, X, Y, or Z and, and, you know, his intentions being for one specific goal of, you know, of, of being labeled as a person who did this thing. It was just kind of like, right. Like he wasn't trying to necessarily be, he wasn't declaring himself. Yeah. He wasn't like standing on a soapbox regularly and he didn't want to be necessarily an activist. Like he wasn't trying to be Harvey Milk. He was just, in his own way, being an advocate mm-hmm. and an activist. Right. And you know what? It, it is something to say, too, that for some people at some point, there is no other option than to become an advocate and an right. activist. At 
a certain point when you are a person of color and you're queer and everyone around you is dying and the government is doing nothing to help Mm -hmm. there's no other option than to to make yourself loud and vocal and and stand up for yourself because sylvester doesn't seem like the type of person that would back down a person who leaves home at 13 to 15 to then live on their own to then pave their own way to great success that doesn't seem like a person that's just gonna you know stand by and let things happen like even if Sylvester didn't necessarily set out to be this voice for so many people. Mm -hmm. It feels like he would have become that no matter what happened to him. I agree. And I feel like it's classic. I want to say classic Sylvester, but like I don't know him just from my brief research, but it feels like it really does embody all of the things that I've read for the situation to be like, you should never have to be a martyr because of your existence. You should never be forced into martyrdom for a cause. But he was like, he knew it was happening. He knew just like so many people probably at that time were like you said, forced into this sort of role Mm -hmm. as I know that this is going to be how things end for me. Right. And so I'm going to, do what I can in the time that I have to make something out of it. Absolutely. And so he was, that's exactly the person that he was. He was like, fuck this. I'm going to do something. If you're forcing me to do this, right. I'm going to do it. Because that's what he always did. Right. right. He's like, I'm going to do it. Right. So I think that really does go to demonstrate his, like you were talking about Amy too, like this consistent same sort of personality and, and the, the same will, the character. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And it's like those characteristics we see in great people. And so everyone mm-hmm. we talk about truly has all of these things. Like even while you were telling the story and I don't want to necessarily compare them too too much, but like I did think of Willie Ninja. I did think mm-hmm. of a, a queer person of color, you know, yeah. doing these things and doing these art forms and really building himself out of nothing and having family members that you know either really accepted him or really didn't and just kind of like doing right. your thing and then being able to make something of it but then also using your fame and popularity and your success to then be a voice for others that don't have the same mm-hmm. platform absolutely like creating a lasting community i think is really out of it and course it's never something that should have to have been done but he did it and i also think it reminds me too like the quote at the end isn't that a rupaul quote isn't it something and the rest is drag we just we're all born naked and the rest is drag yeah and that that was like exactly like as i was reading the interview in which sylvester gave that quote i was like that's the exact same thing that you know we hear when we turn on the tv and watch vh1 you know right 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 life is a stage and we're all just whatever players characters actors whatever one of the they all that's a quote too shakespeare sure whatever yeah whatever you want it to be Mm -hmm. there you go well thank you for telling me that story thank you sylvester for everything you did we uh we appreciate you oh let's oh let's recommend let's recommend a song each What's a song, a Sylvester song that you would recommend? Okay, well, I haven't listened to enough of them to recommend. I feel like I have yet to find the original piano version of his popular song of You You Make Make Me Me Feel Feel Mighty Real on Instagram. Come follow us at Historically Really and we'll include some snippets of our favorite songs. If we can, I think we can. I think we can also include them into this episode. (gasps) Okay. 
Okay, so we will try to do that. We'll share our favorite tunes because I love disco. Disco is not dead. You all just don't know how to dance. So and I those are my final thoughts. My and my favorite favorite song ever is an Amy Winehouse song. So I'll try to share. What that. song is it? Cupid. Are you gonna you're gonna keep it a secret? No, no, no. It's okay. It's it's all okay. Right. Share it. Stay tuned. Okay. We'll see. We'll figure it out. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you, Rachel. I appreciate your story. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to episode 16 of Historically Really Good Friends, where we talked about some music icons. This is your weekly reminder that acknowledging the queerness of our history makes joining a street gang sorority a bit more fun. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. To see photos from this week's episode, make sure to check out our Instagram at historicallyreally, and make sure to send us your personal stories to historicallyreallygoodfriends at gmail.com. We hope to see you again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.